You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 10th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, UK and US naval forces repel the largest attack yet in the Red Sea. The moment a group of masked men storm an Ecuadorian television studio live on air. And Houston, we have a problem again. With each successful mission, Artemis ushers in the next wave of men and women to explore our moon and prove that together we are ready to go beyond. How much trouble is NASA's rebooted lunar program in? Plus the latest on Taiwan's elections. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. Overnight, UK and US naval forces have repelled the largest attack yet by Yemen's Houthi rebels on shipping in the Red Sea. The US military says the Iran-backed group launched 18 drones and three missiles, all of which were shot down by carrier-based jets and four warships. No injuries or damage were reported. Iona Craig is a journalist specialising in the Arabian Peninsula. Iona, what more do we know about this attack? Well, actually, the latest figures seem to be even more than that. There were 21 drones um, that were launched. Seven of them were shot down by HMS Diamond. The rest were shot down by the Americans. And as you say, two anti-ship cruise missiles, one ballistic missile fired. And that followed an earlier incident in, uh, in the day yesterday when a bulk carrier was approached by three small vessels and two missiles were fired from those small vessels approaching um, the bulk carrier. So, yes, it was a very busy day yesterday in the Red Sea, but that um, assault last night appeared to be a swarm offensive. So um, it, it may appear that, that the Houthis were trying to test the defence capabilities of the four US warships and the one UK warship that responded um, to that kind of uh, multi-layered attack yesterday, last night. And if that kind of uh, attack, it sounds pretty comprehensive, comes in, you know, day in, day out, uh, how will this uh, naval force, this multinational naval task force that the US assembled, uh, be able to handle this? Will they need reinforcements? Uh, It's going to be incredibly difficult. Um, Yes, because also every time they're firing missiles to defend against that amount, that many drones, they need to be resupplied themselves. So, they're using, you know, much bigger weaponry and missiles to respond to those drone attacks. Um, and yes, just to be able to get ships through the Red Sea now when they're under that kind of assault is going to be incredibly difficult. I mean, U.S. Central Command, um, after the attack last night, reiterated the statement that they put out um, on January the 3rd on behalf of sort of 14 countries that the Houthis will bear responsibility for the consequences of continuing attacks. And, and as you mentioned, this is the biggest assault so far. So it seems it seems almost inevitable now that there will be military consequences for the Houthis um, after this attack. 
And Anthony Blinken earlier on Tuesday on his tour of the Middle East had warned that there would be consequences for the Houthis if they continued. I mean, what do we expect that to look like? Could there be strikes on Houthi positions in Yemen? Uh, I think that's the most likely scenario. Of course, the Houthis would argue that to end these these attacks, um, it would be the simple solution would be for a ceasefire in Gaza because this is at the root they say of what they're doing is Israel Israel's offensive on Gaza. Um, but yes, it looks like the 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 most obvious solution on the military side, well, not even solution, but. Um, progression on this would really to be to go after their um, their launch sites in Yemen, certainly the ballistic missile launch sites. But it's going to be incredibly hard to to, to um, counter the drone issue because they've been using kamikaze drones. They're very small. They can be launched from anywhere at any time. And that's going to be much more difficult um, to counter that. Uh, but yeah, I think they wouldn't go so far as of, of what we've seen happening, let's say, in Lebanon with the, you know, the assassination of um, of individual uh, Houthi officials or um, army personnel at this point, I think we probably would be looking at, at launch sites that would be targeted, certainly a, a way of, of, of sort of messaging to the Houthis that the US and this um, naval coalition, op- Operation Prosperity Guardian, are taking these kind of attacks very seriously. Mm. We know that these drones, like those being used by Russia in Ukraine, are being manufactured in Iran. Do you think they could ever go as far as identifying the sites uh, that they're being assembled and taking those out in Iran? Uh, I mean, it is possible, but I think that would be a step beyond, you know, at the moment, everybody is trying to avoid escalation. And I think that would be a notable escalation if the the US starts targeting sites within Iran itself. Um, I think, you know, uh, one of the things that, that, that the Saudis and certainly even the US has been helping with over the over the course of the conflict in Yemen since 2015 really has been trying to prevent the resupply and supply of Iranian um, military weapons and, uh, and missiles from Iran into into Yemen, uh, and that would certainly help if they could if they were able to stop that flow. But they haven't been able to for the, for the best part of a decade. So it, it looks like certainly with something like these kamikaze drones, when you're looking at very small components and small uh, weaponry, that trying to stop that flow is incredibly difficult. And you know they they can be made ad, ad hoc almost anywhere they don't need to be um put together in the same way and with the same sort of space and capacity as, as say ballistic missiles and cruise missiles that are being built in yemen or shipped into yemen from iran and finally saudi arabia has been urging caution throughout this despite years of battling the houthis themselves um why are they taking this tack now and what are the other gulf states saying um, well, yeah, I mean, the Saudis are very keen to try and push through with a with a peace deal with the Houthis and have been trying to get the Houthis to sign a deal um, for, for at least a year and a half now since the ceasefire was announced in 2022. Um, and they were very close to getting that deal signed when the October 7th attack happened in Israel. And that has really put all of that in jeopardy. So the Saudis are still very keen to extract themselves from the civil war in Yemen to prevent really these ballistic missiles being fired into Saudi Arabia as they have been over the past eight years. Um, I, I think the rest of the Gulf countries have, have been quite quiet on this. Obviously, the UAE would be keen to extract themselves from the conflict in Yemen as well. And again, to prevent the continued firing of ballistic missiles into the UAE, as has happened over the past few years. I mean, I think Oman would still be one of the brokers that might be able to um, mediate 
potentially between the the Houthis and the international community in winding back these attacks on the Red Sea. But I think the Houthis are pretty emboldened at the moment. And certainly after what we saw last night, I don't think they're going to back down anytime soon, even with the UN Security Council resolution that's being proposed for later today, which um, the US has drafted to condemn attack these attacks in the Red Sea and calling for an immediate halt. I don't think that's going to make any difference to the Houthis. Iona Craig, thank you. Now here's Tom Webb with today's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. South Korea's opposition leader was stabbed in the neck by a man who wanted to stop him from becoming president, local people said on Wednesday. Authorities told a news briefing that last week's near-fatal attack was meticulously planned over months. Polish police have arrested the former interior minister and deputy interior minister who took refuge inside the presidential palace after being handed prison sentences for abuse of power. The men refused to recognise the court decision because their party ally, President Andrzej Duda, pardoned them for crimes in 2015. And the White House has ordered a review into revelations that the United States' Defence Secretary failed to disclose that he had received treatment for prostate cancer. Lloyd Austin had surgery for the disease in December and was hospitalised last week due to complications without telling President Joe Biden or his staff. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thanks, Tom. Ecuador's president has ordered that criminal gangs be neutralised after days of violence culminated in an attack on a television studio. Masked gunmen broke into public television channel TC's studio during a live broadcast, forcing staff to the floor at gunpoint. Police made 13 arrests following the attack, which injured two employees. At least 10 people have been killed since a 60-day state of emergency began in Ecuador on Monday. Lewis Harrison is Andean Region Editor at Latin Times. Lewis, thank you for joining us. Firstly, the dramatic footage from TC's studios has gone viral. What do we know about how they managed to pull this off? Morning. Um, Yes, so the attack on TC, um, we don't know which gang carried it out, but it comes in the wake of a major crackdown on organised crime by the government, which has caused a huge upswing by criminal groups around the country. Um, We know that armed gunmen... Around a dozen of them stormed through the reception of the building and burst their way onto air. Um, as he said, they then sort of forced staff member to the, members to the ground. Um, but interestingly, they didn't make anyone read out um, a statement or announcement, which was, you know, expected to be the case. Um, police intervened fairly quickly, um, which may explain that. And I was about to say, did they make any demands on air? But they didn't. So was this just a show of force from the gangs? And, and how did authorities manage to safely rescue the staff? Yeah, so um, I think police were already on very high alert because President Naboa had declared a state of emergency uh, the day before, which means that military are on the streets um, helping police with um, crime prevention. Uh, the attack took place in Guayaquil, which is a port city on the Pacific coast, which is the epicentre of um, of sort of Ecuadorian drug trafficking. Um, So the police there would have been on very high alert. And just the fact that it went out live on air in the centre of town means there would have been um, a large security contingent nearby. And why has Ecuador turned more violent in recent years? Um, Yeah, there's a few reasons for that. So primarily because um, there's there's different drug cartels in in Mexico, which are backing different um, smaller gangs in Ecuador, which have grown increasingly powerful as they're being kind of um, 
supported by Mexican and Colombian cartels who are trying to support shipments to rival gangs abroad. Um, this has seen an influx of heavy weaponry from Mexico. It's also seen um, cartels across the Colombian border um, taking increasive steps to, um, to step up their presence in northern Ecuador. Um, and this has basically intensified a turf war between three main Ecuadorian gangs. You've got Los Lobos, uh, Los Choneros and Los Tigarones. And a 60-day state of emergency began on Monday, as I mentioned. But how is the president actually planning to neutralise these gangs during this period? Yeah, so Ecuador's in in pretty uncharted territory here. Um, states of emergency, like the 60-day measure announced a few days ago, they, they've been pretty commonplace. But this officially designated internal, internal armed conflict, um, that raises the stakes. It basically moves the, secure, the military from playing a supporting role to playing the main role in the, in the battle against organized crime. Um, we don't quite know what that will look like. In 1995, the government deployed a similar measure, um, but that was very localized in the border with Peru, where there were armed clashes going on. This is nationwide, and I think we can expect to see um, an increased use of heavy weaponry um, in the fight against criminal gangs. We can expect to see the military being the main player in that fight against gangs. And um, there's also been talk of loosening the rules around use of force by the police. Um, Congress has said that it was looking at passing legislation to allow police and military to, um, to be more easily pardoned if they use lethal force in the line of duty. Um, so I think it's really a, a raising of the stakes and, and more will be revealed in the coming weeks. And finally, Ecuador's uh, president uh, is new in office. He's the world's youngest elected head of state at only 36. How much of a test is this going to be for him? Oh, it's a massive test. Um, There's actually a concurrent crisis going on in in the prison system, which is where a lot of the gang leadership is based. And there's also 140 prison staff currently being held hostage, which has kind of escaped the news due to the violence on the streets and the the violence in the television studio. But Nabarra is facing crisis on multiple levels. He's got gunmen storming public buildings, um, crisis in the prison sector, and also fairly widespread corruption in the judiciary, which is um, hampering this fight against crime. So, and I should add that he's only got a year before elections are next year in 2025. So I think Navarro is facing a, a colossal task. Lewis Harrison, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. To Asia now, where final frantic campaigning is underway ahead of Saturday's presidential elections in Taiwan. The future of Taiwan's relationship with China has dominated the debate, with some candidates pushing for a de-escalation and tighter ties, while others want them to pull away. China has escalated its pressure campaign in recent days, accused of running a conspiracy theory-heavy disinformation campaign and compromising Taiwan's airspace with spy balloons. James Crabtree is a distinguished visiting fellow in the Asia programme at the European Council on Foreign Relations. He joins us now from Singapore. James, uh, one party watching all this very closely is, of course, the United States, an ally of Taiwan. What's what's been their position during the campaign? Uh, The US has been fairly neutral. They haven't said anything to interfere with the election. I think it's no secret that they would prefer a return for the DPP, which is the the ruling party, 
and its candidate, whose name is Lai Qingde or William Lai Qingde. Um, but they haven't said that in public. Um, uh, but they, they would prefer a return of the party that is basically more pro-US and has less good relations with Beijing. Hmm. Taiwan Central Election Commission estimates that there are 19.5 million eligible voters on Saturday, but polling in the last 10 days of the campaigning is banned. Do we have any idea of the direction of where the mood is taking those voters? Well, the polling has consistently showed a slim but uh, reasonable lead for the DPP. So I think it will be a surprise if they don't win. I think everyone is expecting that they will win. It'll be reasonably close. And the significance of that is that China uh, is very anti the DPP, and in particular, their presidential candidate, Lai Qingde, who they believe is a greater supporter or a supporter of formal Taiwanese independence. Therefore, if the DPP do win, you can expect over the coming weeks and months China to do more of the kind of activities that you mentioned in your introduction, uh, military exercises um, and other sorts of coercion. Last September, President Biden seemingly updated the US's position, saying America would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. What's been the impact of that statement, uh, do you think, on the course of this election and China's actions since? No particular income on the course of the election, but it has added a lot of confusion in relations between the United States and China, because that isn't the American policy. The American policy is one of um, uh, ambiguity. And and therefore, although President Biden does say this from time to time, um, his policy is then corrected um, by the officials who say, actually, that's not really what the US believes. Um, China thinks that what Biden says is the official US policy. And so the result is really confusion about what the US would do uh, and when in a way that is not very helpful to the management of ties between Beijing and Washington, which are already extremely complicated. Mm. And when President Xi met President Biden late last year for talks in San Francisco, he reportedly made it clear he believed Taiwan would rejoin China. There are more talks going on uh, between China and Washington this week. How much is this impacting their relationship? Well, Taiwan is what the Chinese call the the core of their core interests. It is the thing that they care about more than anything at all, apart from the survival of the Communist Party and government. Uh, And therefore, all the things that you hear about in the relations between the US and China, trade wars or tariffs, whatever it might be, are secondary to Taiwan. Um, And that is why this election is so significant, because if Taiwan becomes much more of a problem, as in Taiwan does Uh, develop an even worse relationship with China, it will make everything else more complicated. The relationship between Washington and Beijing will be more complicated. The relationship between European countries and Beijing will be more complicated. And it just raises the chances of a even more catastrophic future scenario like a blockade or a quarantine or even a military conflict. And how much has Hong Kong's experience over the past few years shaped the public mood of the electorate ahead of the election? I would say it is an underlying factor that that uh, all the political parties now reject the idea that there is a future in of unification with China based on one country, two systems. So that used to be that was China's offer, as in you join with China, we'll offer you one country, two systems. And the example of Hong Kong has revealed to anyone who would have been naive enough to think that that was a possible future that that isn't a very appealing one because one country, two systems doesn't really exist. So I think it, the example of Hong Kong is one factor amongst many 
which have led the people of Taiwan to view unification with China unfavorably. And that is an underlying uh, secular trend in Taiwan that over time, uh, the Taiwanese people have grown you know, much more fond of the status quo and much more skeptical of the idea of uh, any kind of reunification project. James Crabtree, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Staying in Asia, Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. has hosted Indonesia's Joko Widodo in Manila today. The two nations have much to discuss in their bilateral, but security in the South China Sea has been a top issue for both. Erin Cook is a Jakarta-based journalist and the author of Dari Mulet Ke Mulet, a newsletter about Southeast Asia. Erin, firstly, how has this visit gone today? It's a very exciting one. Indonesia and the Philippines, of course, have you know lived very close together for for a long time now. But this visit really shows the the depths of that relationship. Jokowi has headed over. It's not just him. He's got most of his high or quite a few of his high ranking ministers with him, uh, which I think really stresses how important Indonesia sees this relationship, particularly. Um, as a, as a show of support for the Philippines after what's been a pretty brutal six months uh, in the South China Sea, which is, of course, another big issue for Indonesia. A lot of neighbouring countries have pretty fractious relationships, but what is the relationship like between uh, the Philippines and Indonesia? And in Indonesia? They're very, very close. There's a, a lot of shared uh Certainly a shared culture between um, the two, particularly between Eastern Indonesia and Southern Philippines, as well as a lot of people-to-people links. There are a lot of families that go back and forth and a lot of um, business links as well, which both sides of of the visit are hoping to, to deepen over the coming days. And how aligned are they in their position on the South China Sea and China's recent actions? Very, very aligned. I think um, Southeast Asia, so not just Indonesia and the Philippines, are working towards uh, a code of con- code of conduct rather in the um, South China Sea with China. That's a bit of a, a bit of a mixed bag. There's ten countries that are represented there, but Indonesia and the Philippines have been very much on the same on the same line for for a long time now, and with in increased incursions in the West Philippine Sea, so sort of the the Philippine claims parts of South China Sea, that's becoming more and more of a of a priority for both the Philippines and Indonesia, where Indonesia sees if uh, China is making moves in the Philippines, then it's certainly going to come down further south into Indonesia's claim as well. And in terms of building consensus in the region, how are those efforts going? Uh, it's a bit of a tricky one. There's a a few of the countries, I would say, probably are a bit more, um, to say diplomatically, a bit more friendly with China than they are with some of their Southeast Asian cousins, which makes the, the consensus building very, very difficult, um, particularly when we look towards mainland Southeast Asia with Cambodia specifically, who are very close with um, China. It's going to be an interesting one this year, though. The chairmanship of ASEAN has switched to Laos and Laos is an interesting one. It is the only country in Southeast Asia that doesn't have any any coastline. So it may give Indonesia and the Philippines more of a leadership role if Laos, Laos is less interested. And what else did the two delegations discuss? 
The the very big one is the case of Mary Jane Veloso. She is a Filipino migrant worker who was on remains on death row in Indonesia after being busted on drug trafficking. She was um, slated to be executed back in 2015 among a quite a few executions once Jokowi became president, um, but was kind of that one was put on the back burner after it came to light that she'd been a victim of drug trafficking. This is a huge story for the Philippines who have wanted to see Mary Jane returned home for almost a decade now. And that's the first thing that Bong Bong Marcos has been asked by local reporters there. So I hope we will see some movement um, there in the coming days. Do you think we could see some kind of pardon? I wouldn't be surprised. Jokowi only has 10 months left in his presidency. He knows that this is an extraordinarily big deal for the Philippines. And to kind of shore up his his legacy, I wouldn't be surprised if we did see Mary Jane head home soon. And finally, you've touched on it there. There's not much left of his term. Who's likely to be his successor and will they have a similar position on China? Absolutely. It, at this stage, it looks like Prabowo Subianto... Uh, Jokowi's former challenger, now defence minister. If anything, I should expect to see him much harder on China than Jokowi's been. And I think uh, that might be good news for the Philippines. They'll, they'll welcome that for sure. Erin Kirk in Jakarta, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And finally, if you were listening to Monday's show, we covered the excitement over the launch of the uncrewed Vulcan rocket from Cape Canaveral, Florida, to dispatch a robotic spacecraft towards the moon. Unfortunately, the craft reported an inability to orient its solar panel towards the sun and keep its battery topped up. A propulsion system glitch was also found to be causing a critical loss of fuel and damaging the spacecraft's exterior. As a result, it was determined there was no chance of a soft landing on the moon. It would have been America's first mission to do so since the famed Apollo missions of the 1960s and 70s. David Whitehouse, astronomer and science writer, is back on the briefing. Um, David, what exactly went wrong? We think there was some sort of propellant leak uh, on board the craft because when, as you imply, when it gets into orbit, the first thing it needs to do is charge up its batteries and therefore it has to point itself towards the sun. It wasn't able to do that and we think that there was a leak from one of the fuel tanks of propellant that maybe actually as it was being thrust jetted out into space was causing the spacecraft to turn or move or not point in the right direction. The automatic stability uh, system kicked in and tried to fire the other thrusters to compensate for this, to enable it to point towards the sun. But this didn't work very efficiently. And of course, it used up a lot of uh, propellant that they needed to land on the moon. So after a day or so of trying to get it to work uh, and then actually finding out that it wasn't going to work. The battery was being depleted very quickly and the spacecraft would soon die. They realized that there was no chance whatsoever of even getting this thing to the moon, let alone landing on it. So great disappointment at uh, Astrobiotic, the company made this, because this is a this is a simple, standard, often problem with spacecraft that they're just being unlucky with. And what will happen to this craft now? It'll be in, I think, in quite a wide orbit 
Um, they've still got some communication with it, I believe. So there may be some science to do with it. They may be able to learn something from it. But effectively, this this is space space travel um, with uh, you know rockets and spacecraft. They go wrong from time to time. And it's always a tragedy and it's always awful when it's your rocket, when it's your spacecraft that goes wrong. You just really have to accept it. It's galling that it seems to be such a straightforward problem. But Astrobiotic will learn from this and they've got other missions to go and land on the moon later this year. So since there are going to be at least 10 missions to the moon this year and space travel is difficult, you would perhaps have thought that um, you know one or two of them might fail. It's just sad that it was the first one of the year. Mm. Though thankfully it was, of course, unmanned. Um, but how much of a setback will this be in terms of the timeline? Because NASA is obviously wanting to try and now, we think, beat uh, China in its attempt to uh, get an astronaut to the moon. Is this going to upset the sort of timeline they'd locked in? Well, it, this is a currently a hotly debated topic because, uh, yes, we don't know China's ambition. Well, we know China wants to put astronauts on the moon, but we don't know when. And um, we do not have a, a good idea as to how far they are in developing the technology for that for that landing. But NASA's Artemis program to put people back on the moon is suffering a lot at the moment. This mission was to provide some ground truth uh, for what it's like on the surface of the moon. And that will come this year, with, with not with this mission, but with other missions. But NASA has just announced that it's slipping the timeline for Artemis 2, where four, four astronauts will travel around the moon from the end of this year to the end of next year. And the landing is going to be probably one one or two years after that. So this isn't contributing to the slippage. The main reason for that is Elon Musk with his component of the lunar landing uh, mission, which is which is late and is going to need a lot more testing than, than NASA hoped. So yes, this is a setback, not a major setback, but overall on the return people to the moon, it is slipping. And as you say, as it slips, everybody's wondering about what China might do. And finally, uh, we had got used to, of course, during the years of the shuttle, spaceflight becoming somewhat routine, although there were, of course, two tragic disasters. But I mean, there were dozens of missions with a with a fairly reliable system. But over the past 18 months, we've seen the failures of SpaceX rockets uh, and others. Does it show that actually, you know, space travel is still something we can't take for granted? It's highly risky when you're trying to develop new crafts. Exactly. It is. When you're pushing the envelope, when you're doing new things, you fail, often fail. And SpaceX has a motto, which is fail fast and learn. And you have to learn from your failures. So overall, we are more efficient uh, uh, putting things into space and launch more satellites than we've ever launched before by a great margin. It, there are failures. There will always be failures. There, and, and they come to prominence because we all talk about them. It's part of progress. But as far as launching people into space, as far as launching satellites into space, we've never done really as much as we have done now. And it's overall much better than it used to be. David Whitehouse, thank you very much. I'm sure we'll be talking to you over the months to come on the progress of NASA back to the moon. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Tom Webb. Our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time with me, Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening.